Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, and I am your chief investigator of images. Every week I will be joined by a wonderful assistant and today I'm particularly delighted to be joined by my colleague, Professor of Mathematics, and you've got this wonderful title here, uh, Simile Professor for the Public Understanding of the Sciences. That's right. And uh, your name is Marcus de Sotoy. <laughs> oh, great to be with you. <laughs> big intro there, Marcus. <laughs> yes, big title with uh, big expectations. Big Everyone expectations. always expects that I must know the whole of science, and here I am to <laughs> explain it to you all. But uh, now we're going to try and mix some science and art together. We are. We're going to do something radical today with Art Detective. Um, this is something that we're both interested in, isn't it? We, we love this idea of kind of crossing disciplinary boundaries, uh, pushing the understandings of, of where we get to within my discipline of art history, your discipline of mathematics, and where we can go with it. So we're going to have some fun today because we're talking about Jackson Pollock. And in particular, if you want to look it up, the clever people at History Hit have embedded the image into the podcast. So you can click on the link and see it. But you can also type it into your search engine. And it is called simply number five. And it's painted in 1948. So you can type in Pollock, number five, 1948. Um, Pollock is a controversial painter for lots of reasons. Not well, everyone likes him, do they? I, I think a lot of people feel, um, oh, come on, anybody could make these paintings. <laughs> I mean, I've got uh, uh, three kids um, who very often at the end of a painting session, the uh, the room looks like a Jackson Pollock uh, <laughs> because, you know, you, you, what is Jackson Pollock doing? It looks like, I mean, I mean, he's these famous drip paintings. So he sort of scatters paint across a canvas. And, and frankly, it looks like um, anybody could do it. So when this painting which sold for the at the time i think it was the the most anyone paid for a painting it was yeah. something uh like seven, 75 million pounds or something 75 million pounds uh, unbelievable yeah. and, and a lot of journalists said oh come on it, it's just a load of paint being scattered around so i think it really does um d divide opinion mm. because people feel like well What's so special about this? Mm. But the the amazing thing for me is that there is something very special about it. But you need mathematical eyes to be able to actually decode why um, Jackson Pollock is doing something special. Mm. And this is something that you touched on 
in in your book, The Number Mysteries. Uh, I was absolutely intrigued by this because this is a wonderful, I love that book. I mean, we'll talk, you've got your new book out at the moment, What We Cannot Know, which is also brilliant. We'll go on and talk a little bit about the limits of our, of our knowledge as well. But with The Number Mysteries, you're trying to to quite simply break down complex mathematical problems in ways that the public can, can really start to engage and unpick them. But you use Pollock as your example, don't you? That's right. I think um, mathematics is the, the language of nature. It's hiding under absolutely everything and in the, this book the number mysteries i really wanted to show um you know as you said to try and integrate mathematics into culture and show that it's it's everywhere in music in architecture um but also in art um and, and i think what's exciting is that very often i'll find quite a lot of common ground with artists uh especially musicians, but also visual artists as well. You do theatre um, as well, don't you? Theater. I love this idea yes. of you on the stage making maths fun. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I did a lot of work with uh, Complicite. Um, they're a theatre company I've loved ever since I was a student. Um, and I was very lucky to work on a play they did about mathematics. Um, and in that play, I spent a lot of time doing workshops with them. And we were exploring how actually theatre is quite similar in doing mathematics because theatre is a very sort of abstract space it's not the real world yeah you're and conjuring up you are conjuring ideas. up things with yeah. the kind of axiomatic framework and you let these things run and uh, so actually the process of doing maths and creating maths wasn't so dissimilar from the process of creating theatre so I um, I actually if I wasn't a mathematician I'd wanted to run away with a theatre company so it's just my way of kind <laughs> it's of it's your um, secret life yeah, coming out exactly. now Marcus <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but this idea of the connection with art it's absolutely fundamental and and you know it, previously on The Art Detective we looked at Leonardo da Vinci we, we discussed with, with Professor yeah. Martin Kemp who of course was a scientist the implications of of looking at art with the scientist's eye and looking at art with the mathematician's eye now this is something slightly different isn't it well there's clearly a lot of maths in a, a lot of the our art that's been created ever since the renaissance uh, you know to be able to represent a three-dimensional universe on a two-dimensional canvas requires um the art of mathematics to to project things and actually in the renaissance you can see um people showing off their ability to create three-dimensional objects on a two-dimensional canvas by drawing platonic solids totally. uh, and Archimedean solids and and that you know they're they're very unforgiving these shapes you know if you draw an apple okay if it's a little irregular it doesn't matter because it might be an irregular apple but if you're drawing a dodecahedron well there's no way you can you can fake it um so so it's a real uh, example and and Leonardo did a lot of drawings of the shapes at, at any actually this is what's lovely uh, during that period um mathematicians rediscovered uh shapes, Archimedean solids that had, people hadn't known about and they needed the artists to actually bring them to life. Mm. So it's not just mathematicians giving artists interesting things to draw. The artists were, were helping the mathematicians to, to recover these shapes that Archimedes, uh, Archimedes had talked about. So. Well, I mean, we probably both experienced this when you publish a book and you need illustrations. I suppose what we're looking at in the, in the Renaissance is this relationship between the ideas of the mathematicians Head, what they're trying to visualise in their heads and then the artists bringing their dexterity and their skill on paper to, to bear. I mean, I'm thinking now of Dura and Melancholia with yes. that dodecahedron in the foreground and, and it's a way of them showing off their virtuosity. You know, pay me to do your portrait because I'm better at drawing these sorts of technical images. In, in Melancholia, it's interesting, it's actually not a dodecahedron. It's one of these interesting shapes which oh, is no, of made out of a, triangles and squares, I think it is. And it's a, it is one of these Archimedean solids, That's which, uh, um, uh, but yeah, there's fascinating stuff in that Dora. I mean, there's, mm. I think, a magic square as well. Magic and, square uh, with all the 
numbers lining up and then this complete sphere as well that that yes. perfectly the again another very unforgiving unsig- uh object very uh, unforgiving, uh, yeah, yeah so uh but anyway we're drifting away from pollock but actually there i was intrigued because of all the for- forms of art I would have thought you and I could sit here and talk at length about things like Dürer, about things like Leonardo. Of all the art forms, I thought abstract abstract expressionism is probably the, in a way, the furthest from being mathematically precise. But I was wrong. And this is what's interesting about Pollock, because he's actually creating a, a geometric shape which is of its time, which is a fractal. Um, so the, we discovered um, these new kind of shapes um, uh, in the 20th century, which have this kind of infinite complexity to them. Um, these fractals, anyone who went clubbing during the 80s and 90s probably remembers that they were projected. They're very psychedelic kind of images, the Mandelbrot set, um, and they arise out of the mathematics of chaos theory. Um, they are the kind of geometry of chaos theory. So they're very 20th uh, century kind of mathematical shapes. So it's it's interesting that here we have Pollock, you know, like Leonardo in the Renaissance is drawing very classical shapes. Pollock is actually recreating in these paintings um, these fractal shapes, which, which are the kind of geometry of our age. So I think we need to unpack this a bit because, um, you know, I'm struggling with, with some of the mathematical terminology myself. But but this idea then, OK, so, so fractals, because when I was reading The Number Mysteries, it's about the angles between points, isn't it? Is that right? No, it's more about um, a property of a shape is fractal. If if you zoom in on it, uh-huh. it never simplifies. So very often a shape you zoom in, suddenly um, uh, you know something complex simplifies and you can see how it's built up. These are shapes that as you zoom in, they never simplify. And they sort of, sort of seem to replicate themselves at, at um, closer and closer scale. Right. Um, and, and so it's, uh, it's, it's this question. Quality, this infinite complexity um, that sort of characterizes um, a fractal. And uh, it's a, what is often called a scaleless shape. It doesn't have a sense of scale. And this is what's magical, I think, about the Pollock, because um, as you sort of, it's quite an interesting exercise to take a Pollock and then take a small zoomed in section and then take another small in zoom section of that one and zoom in again. So you've got four different. Um, uh, kind of levels of this Pollock, you put them next to each other, it's very difficult to tell which is the original painting and which is the zoomed in one. At some point you start to hit, hit the kind of pixelation of the paint, but the the quality of a Pollock is that, um, and you've probably experienced it, if anyone's seen a Pollock in real life, they're generally huge, but as you go up to them, the fractal quality means that after a while you're not quite sure how close you are to this shape. And this is the um, special quality of a fractal, that um, it, as much as you zoom in, it does not simplify. And I mean, this is utterly fascinating and slightly mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I do appreciate what you're saying. So coming back to just purely a, a visual impression of number five that we're looking at, it's been described as a bird nest. And, and essentially what we've got um, are these layers of paint built up over the, these quite free movements. Um, and actually what you were arguing in your book was that you can't fake a Pollock because we might think what's happened is somebody has literally just splashed paint around. Like you say, the kids finish painting and chuck it around the kitchen. But there's something precise going on here, which is creating this fractal effect, which is which is unique to him. Is that correct? That's right. It is actually possible to fake a Pollock if you understand the maths, um, because what Pollock was doing was not what uh, my kids are doing, which is. Uh, they've got their arms are generally 
quite fixed at their elbow, uh, at their shoulder, sorry, and they're, they're moving their arm around in quite a regular way. In fact, what they're doing is to making quite a regular sort of pendulum effect. Ah. Um, and so the shapes that they create um, are, you know, kind of dripped and splattered and things, but they're actually quite regular in some sense. Uh, what Pollock is doing is uh, actually he's moving his shoulder about as he um, is flicking the paint. Uh, it's, it's said that Pollock actually had very bad balance. Yeah. So actually, when he was standing, he would sort of stagger about a bit. Um, um, and I even got told that he, he used to drunk a lot when he was, uh, paint a lot when he was drunk. Well, he was an uh, alcoholic. I mean, that was his downfall, wasn't it? He yes, died, but that might driving. actually have contributed to the magic of these paintings. Gosh. Because if he's moving around, um, actually what he's creating is not a regular pendulum, but something we call a chaotic pendulum. So a chaotic pendulum is um, one which has this kind of irregular behavior. But the, the geometry of chaos, when you have a chaotic system, which is very sensitive to small changes, um, the geometry that you get are these fractals. Um, so the way that he was painting was actually creating this visual, which has this kind of strange complexity to it. So there is a way to fake a Pollock, yeah. which is to set up a pendulum with a uh, pot of paint on the end, and what you do is you swing the pendulum, but you make sure the the uh, where the pendulum is attached is also moving, and this creates what we call a chaotic pendulum. And then the paint effect are, are, that you get with this dripping paint has this fractal quality. So it's it's possible to use, and this has been done actually by um, a physicist, and it's called the Pollockizer. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I actually had a go at doing this. Um, uh, I went over to uh, Pollock's studio, uh, which is in the Hamptons uh, in Long Island. Uh, and it's uh, it's a, an extraordinary place, a huge, great big room that he painted in. Um, I actually took a p picture of the, um, the floor because the floor is a P Pollock painting in its own right because of course he put these canvases down and he's flicking paint a lot oh. of the paint is flying off of the course, canvas yeah. onto the floor the results yeah. so the floor is an actual Pollock so I, I actually took a photo of this and I use it as my desktop on yeah. my computer because <laughs> it's um so stunning uh uh but we actually did an experiment uh whilst we were there and we set up a Pollockizer and we tried to create um something that had that fractal quality that Pollock's paintings had um well you've heard it here now listeners if if Marcus de Soto is Suddenly comes up with some uh, auction house. I've got a Pollock. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. It's a fake one. It's done by the Pollockizer. <laughs> well, the, in, the uh, uh, actually contrasting to this, there, there's um, been a lot of people trying to attempt to fake Pollocks. Yeah. But by using a mathematical analysis, we've been able to show that they don't have this fractal quality, that as you zoom in, they actually change kind of texture and the, they don't have this kind of infinite complexity so the mathematics has been used to identify some paintings that people were trying to flog off as Pollocks mm. as actually not Pollocks at all. This is what I've heard. There was a whole room of presumed Pollocks and the mathematicians got to work, looked at the, what are the ratios? Because there were numbers that I was intrigued ah, by yes. 1.5 and 1.7. And so, it was these sorts of ratios that allowed them to determine whether it was a Pollock or not. So there's something called a fractal dimension, uh, which... So if you think about a line, that has dimension one. But the actual canvas that um, Pollock is painting on, that's a two-dimensional surface. But these fractals are almost so complex, they're trying to fill the space that we've actually been able to define mathematically a dimension which is between just a simple line 
and a two-dimensional surface. And so the, the amount of complexity of a fractal, how much it's kind of filling the space on the canvas, we can measure and uh, we will have we can give dimensions which sound kind of crazy of like a, a dimension of 1.5 uh well what's that it's sort of halfway between a line and filling uh the the, the canvas the two-dimensional space so uh, and you can measure uh the the change in pollock's work through his life that he started off with quite low fractal dimensions um during his middle period um which the uh, painting that we're talking about comes from you hit a kind of fractal dimension of sort of 1.5 the last painting he uh did which i think is called blue blue blue, blue poles blue poles exactly yeah. that is so complex it's so covered in paint and the fractal dimension of that is pretty high but these um fake pollocks didn't have any fractal dimension at all you measured it and they they were pretty much just coming out as simple lines once you did the analysis. So that was the way of telling. But you can also uh, sort of date the periods using this fractal dimension. It's absolutely amazing to well, think about this. And I do, I mean, I do get it. I do. I am getting it. <laughs> Slowly but surely. But but presumably if someone wanted to fake a Pollock, it, it actually comes down to the repetitious action of laying down these layers and layers and layers but and layers. But with, um, with, with chaos. The chaos with, with the, the chaos. lack of symmetry and harmony that's coming from a regular pendulum effect. You, yeah, so you need a system. So a chaotic system is one which has incredible sensitivity to small changes. So the weather is an example of a chaotic system uh, that um, you might have heard this thing called the butterfly effect. Yeah, so that a butterfly flaps its wings that's enough to cause a small change such that a sunny day five days later turns into a hurricane hitting um, oxford for example <laughs> uh so uh, uh, and the trouble is that nature is controlled by chaotic systems so they become very hard to be able to make predictions with this is why this painting relates to the book that I've just written called What We Cannot Know, because one of the uh, limitations of knowledge are chaotic systems. We might have the equations to tell us about the weather, to tell us about planetary motion, to tell us about the economy. But because these systems are very often so sensitive to small changes, we can never have a complete description of the setup such that we can read it into the future. A small change in like the 50th decimal place can cause it to, to go in a completely different direction. And this is something you and I have, have talked about in the past. Um, it, it's one of those wonderful points where you know, ideas collide. But I love your latest book. I love this idea of what we cannot know because what you're reaching as a scientist, as a mathematician, is you're reaching the point where you say, actually, I can't predict any further than this. And it's it's in the realm of belief in, as much as anything else, isn't it? The unknown. Well, the unknown, exactly. It's... Um, I'd rather like a uh, theologian who was here in Oxford, Herbert McCabe. Uh, uh, he talked about That's the existence of uh, right, okay, yeah. <laughs> a Marxist theologian. Yeah. I mean, you can't get better than that. Awesome. Um, but Herbert McCabe talk, talked about the idea that, well, God um, is actually just the, the, the fact that there's an unanswered question about the universe. Yeah. It's, and uh, religion has very often committed iconoclasm by giving this very abstract idea far too many properties it never should have had. It's a very hard thing to <laughs> cope with the unknown. And that's why we try and personify it or, or give it things, which actually it should never have. So the book, uh, I'm trying to explore whether scientifically we can identify what will always be unknown. Yeah. Sure, there are loads of unknowns. Uh, that's what drives me to get up every morning is trying to solve the maths problems I can't solve or the science problems. But I was interested whether there are any questions that by their nature would always remain unknowable. And chaos theory does, and these fractals, actually 
do tell us that there are parts of the the universe that and part of just the world around us that although we might know how it works it's so sensitive that we can't use that to to make much to, to know what's going to happen next to be definitive i mean th th this is the i suppose the point at which i i was intrigued about talking about pollock with you because to me uh, the abstract expressionist but pollock in particular represents the point at which art for me, ceases to be something I can make sense of in a logical way and becomes something far more visceral, far more emotion, emotional and emotive and, and actually quite chaotic. And yet for you to then say, of all the painters, this is the one that works on a dense mathematical level, I found that absolutely intriguing. Well, there's another important um, connection here, which is to nature. Right. So I think what we're responding to when we look at a Pollock is that we're seeing an abstract representation of the natural world because the natural world by its very nature is fractal yeah. uh, and the things which m grow stuff have these chaotic equations uh so if you think about well yeah i went to pollock's studio what's it surrounded by woods right and the woods it was winter time and those those trees with the branch and smaller branches and smaller branches are examples of fractals so he was looking at the natural world around him in the Hamptons and he was representing it on the canvas. Yeah. And the, the pollocks that people love, we can measure the fractal dimension of things in nature. And it tends to be around the 1.5. Yeah. Uh, and so the pollocks that people love are those that are actually um, got a fractal dimension, which is very close to those in nature. People don't tend to like the very complex ones or the slightly simpler ones because they're they're sort of going out of the bounds of what we we feel we're seeing in the natural world. But it's, it's something I've talked about in the past about the, the Fibonacci sequence, of course, but this idea, of course, going into uh, Vitruvian Man and the idea of the two to one, we see that replicated in architecture. One of the reasons, I've said this before, but one of the reasons a Palladian villa feels so nice is because it's all done on the principle of one to two. And that idea of, of, of feeling comfortable in a space because it, it it's familiar from your own body and also from the natural world is absolutely intrinsic to art architecture music the the discordant the uncomfortable is when you twist against the edges of those assumed proportions a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ...and harmonies, isn't it? I, yes, but I think you see people think that the Pollock um, is is not connecting yeah. to... It, 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 but actually, they are experiencing something which is highly natural, it, but, that's, but that's in this it. abstracted uh, sense. Uh, this actually can be used because if you want to replicate nature, uh, I went to Pixar Animation to see them making some of you their get movies. You womanized trips. No, this, this was a real privilege to be um, <laughs> uh, taken because Pixar is actually founded on the realization that if you want to replicate um, the natural world artificially in a film or an animation, uh, you can use the mathematics of chaos theory and fractals to do that. That's what Pollock was doing unknowingly. I don't think he realized. Uh, the what what he was doing had this mathematical significance, but the the people in Pixar really do. They they read about Mandelbrot's work on how chaos and fractals create things which look have a very natural feel to them. Mm. So instead of uh, there being animators creating all of those extraordinary backgrounds for a film like Up, um, if, if you have seen Up, it's just a wonderful Amazing. story about the kid and the grandpa going off in the the balloon. But they go into the jungle, and all of these jungle scenes are created by mathematical algorithms through exploiting what Pollock was doing, that you can create uh, an, a very jungle, natural-like environment using an algorithm which creates a fractal. That is incredible. So the idea that, you know, when you see all the blades of grass or the trees moving, they've just put a program in that's gone, right? Yes, <laughs> Replicate yes. sort of Pollock-style fractals. That's amazing. That's so interesting. But it does make sense to me, it does. And, and I think... Uh, there is a reason that Pollock's sell for £75 million because there is a sense of harmony and beauty and rhythm to them that you almost can't put your finger on for, as a viewer, but the maths allows you to do that. It, it does. Because yeah. this is, I mean, we haven't even described the painting. We're halfway through. Um, it, so it's eight by four um, paint, uh, resin, gloss resin paint, but it's yellows, it's browns, it's greys, it's blues. And and I suppose it is described as this bird nest quality. The thing that I've always taken away from, from Pollock is quite how chaotic it is. So I'm intrigued to see that there is a pattern to this splashed paint. Um, what you said something earlier, he's not aware he's doing it. So this is something that fascinates me. He's obviously creating repeated rhythms with this sort of chaotic gait. <laughs> and I, I'm struggling still to find how that, that seemingly kind of random set of, of events create something that is so mathematically precise. Yes, I think... Well, I, I think that he stumbled on, on a procedure which was very resonant because it was because it had this fractal quality it was looking very natural but in an abstract way but i don't think that he went into it saying okay well i need to create a fractal how do i do that yeah. well i need chaos theory uh, but contrast that with something like someone like salvador dali salvador dali um exposed himself to all of these scientific ideas i mean he always used to say you know i prefer to swim in the hot waters of science rather than the cold waters of art yeah. so that, that was where all of the exciting activity was happening and you've got examples of fractals um in dali's work as yes. well but they're very deliberate the um, visage of war which has a skull uh, and in the three sockets, the two eye sockets and the mouth, you see the skull again. And in those sockets, you see. So you've got this infinite um, regress. It's actually a, an example of a fractal called a Sapinski gasket. My um, goodness. Triangles, smaller triangles in smaller triangles. Uh, but 
it's clear that Dali knew what he was doing. He'd learned about fractals. He said, oh, well, that's a really interesting idea. Let's mix that with my kind of uh, weird art. And and you get this rather extraordinary image, which which has that sense of infinite infinity in it. Did he pull it off? Because <laughs> I'm really intrigued by, if it's being done consciously, does he get the qualities correct? Well, he, yes, he does. Uh, but I think that it's a less interesting painting than these Pollocks, yeah. uh, where... The because most people who look at a Pollock don't know why it's so special, yeah. and that's the mystery of it. It's, it's it's asking you lots of questions. Why am I finding this so fascinating? Why, as I move towards this, am I losing myself? And I I don't understand how big this painting is anymore because I'm so close, and I I just don't know whether it's I don't know how close I am. Yeah. And we can now understand what that uh, effect is. Dolly, I think sometimes is a little bit too. Um, obvious with the kind of images that he's using. Mm. I mean, there's some great maths in, in Dali's work. Uh, uh, one, one of the other ones I love is um, a four-dimensional cube oh, yes. unwrapped into three dimensions, which he then uses to crucify yes. Christ on. Um, and again, he's thinking of the idea of a fourth dimension being something transcendental. Um, if you're crucifying Christ, there's something else. And he represents that mathematically. Now, I think that works as a, as a painting because it's... It works as it's, a concept, doesn't it? Yeah, the, it does, the unrepresentative yeah. and, uh, you know, imagining the transcendental. What a wonderful concept. And I, I like that, that I, the idea that yeah, because there's a realism to Dali, he has to use this in a different way. With Pollock, it's the anti-realism that almost gives the, the beauty of the chaos uh, vi visual strength. And um, it is interesting, isn't it? What makes great art? Why... Pollock survives, why that name and legend survives. I mean, he died at 44. He had a relatively short career, but it, there was a huge outpouring. And, and it is this idea that, that our eye and our mind are working on a level that we are not consciously in control of or aware of. Um, I, I mean, is he unique in that? Is that what makes him so great, do you think? Because he's part of the abstract expressionists, isn't he? And they're all trying to kind of touch the intangible. Um, but he does it in that particular way. I, it's, it's interesting because you can... Uh, set up this Pollockizer, which potentially can do the sort of painting that he was doing. But I, th I think that uh, he was, um, uh, you know, just a master at it. And the, you can see the the the, the evolving practice um, uh, and the evolving complexity of those paintings. So I, I do think that uh, it, it is something that I haven't seen any other painter getting anywhere close to. Um, for me, I often, you know, I'm a mathematician, I'm a scientist, but I spend so much time talking to creative artists, you know, musicians, um, theatre and art. And what I think we're all doing is trying to interpret the world around us, uh, which, you know, the natural world around us. And we all find our own different languages. Mine is the language of mathematics. Um, uh, Pollock, it was the, the language of this kind of chaotic drip painting which again has a mathematics behind it, but a musician will be doing a different thing. But we're all trying to find ways to navigate the natural world around us. And that's why I think I, I so often find a resonance with a creative artist that the, the structures that interest them mm. are often the structures that, that I'm also working on. It's, it is, it's so exciting to be able to talk as an art historian with people from different disciplines because this recurs again and again and actually I think it's something our modern day is eroding as we box ourselves up in in our different academic discourses and 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 it's something that the art the true artist understands almost intuitively and instinctively that there is mathematical order 
with everything. Every canvas is structured. Every good painting that works, works because it is, it is structured. It is either playing with a set of established norms and pleasing compositions, or it's bending those to assault the eye, to do something that, that makes the eye look differently. And that's absolutely the fundamental basis yes. of, of looking at art. I got invited down to uh, St. Martin's, uh, the art college in London, um, because they've got a new programme, which is teaching mathematics. And all of these artists are saying, you know, we didn't get the maths when we did it at school. We didn't understand why it was important. We didn't realise it was going to be the language that we needed. But now we do, and we want to, to know it. And so they've got a great course, which is just getting people to understand different sorts of geometry. It enables them to build things that they never could before, or, or to, to realise that there are structures out there that might be stimulating for their own uh, creative endeavours. So I, I totally agree with you. Education system across the world has just... Uh, compartmentalized education. So you go from the art class, the history class, to the maths class. You don't realize that all of these things are so interconnected. I was having this conversation with my children just the other day. They were asking me about going to secondary school. And I said, well, you know, you'll have to get yourself from your French class to your history class, to your music class. And even in the process of saying that out loud, I thought, how nonsensical is that? We actually make them from a very early age leave one subject behind and walk down a corridor, go into a different room and start another subject. And and in fact, the, that is so destructive to seeing true connections. And as you say, so tapping into this interconnectedness of our understanding of the natural world, trying to actually engage with what it means to be alive and yeah. actually functioning in the world, we question it in different ways. I got asked by Wired magazine to send back a postcard, postcard from uh, the year 2024. Well, my dream for, you know, how the world would have changed. Oh uh, and my postcard was about education. Uh -huh. And I wrote back and said, oh, well, I just hope that we will realise that we don't need to say, oh, I got an A-level in history, English and maths, that people will just say, I've got a diploma in education and yeah. that we will break down the, the barriers between all of these subjects and just realise that, that, you know, they're not just all vertical subjects. There's this horizontal uh, part to education about looking across subjects um, mm. uh, and that's what I love doing with my own subject maths is hiding everywhere um, uh, it's hiding in this pollock and, yeah. and that I think is something that people don't realize that there's just just maths bubbling everywhere I think it's also something that you and I are both very very dedicated to which is is reaching out to people who are not necessarily uh, entitled to the sort of educational system that will push them into into things like the arts, the theatre, uh, the, these things that are maybe inaccessible to some. There are ways to get into all these subjects and, and, and it's trying to find that way to connect, trying to find that way to, to, to make it comprehensible. I think you do amazing work for maths. And as, as somebody who, I've always been all right at it, but sort of, it's not been the way my mind has naturally worked. You make it, you make it make sense. I think that everyone, I have so many people come up to me and say, oh, I don't have a mathematical mind or something. Mm. I think we've all evolved to be very sensitive to, to pattern, to symmetry, yeah. to structure, to, to things which stick out as special in our natural world around us. And, and that is what mathematics is about. It's about structure. It's about pattern. It's about symmetry. Um, it's not about arithmetic. No. I'm rubbish at arithmetic. But yeah. that, and I think that's what <laughs> I most... I do not believe that. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think that most people at school, they just didn't get on with their multiplication tables. They didn't realise that actually that's... It's kind of like the scales of our subject, but music isn't about is isn't scales. Yeah, it's built out of scale, scales. But uh, yeah. And I think that's 
that um, that we all have evolved a brain to be sensitive to structure mm -hmm. because it helps us to to survive. And in, in that in that word, you said arithmetic, you know, this idea of number puzzles, number work, that is, I think, what turns some people off. Some people think they're numerical learners. Some people think they're linguistic learners. I would class myself as a visual learner because I can retain visuals very clearly. Uh, but, but when you actually break that down and say, what am I retaining when I retain a visual? I'm mapping that image into my mind. I'm creating a very specific pattern of where all the relative pieces of this composition are. And I'm retaining that because that's what my brain can do. That is it's simply, uh, I suppose, the realisation of numbers in that way is, is what you do with a lot of your work. Well, I think the mathematicians divide into um, those who think visually and those who think linguistically. Yeah. Uh, and myself, I'm really somebody who likes to think of the world linguistically, interestingly. Oh, interesting. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I study symmetry, which at first sight appears to be an incredibly visual subject. Art detective listeners, Marcus has twins, identical twins in real life. And we were just joking about the well, of course I yeah, life replicating <laughs> art. <laughs> identical yeah, twins uh, symmetry yes but for me what i try and do to understand the visual world can be very uh tricky yeah. uh, sense, as descartes said i think sense perceptions are sense deceptions and you can often trick yourself um with the visual world so for me what i love to do is to take the visual world into something linguistic so the subject that i use is something called group theory which takes something which outwardly looks very symmetrical and and, and geometric I change it into language. The language enables me to manipulate this thing in such ways that I find surprising uh, consequences of these symmetrical objects that I never would have been able to know about. I can create symmetrical objects in, in higher dimensional space, which can never be drawn on a canvas or, or made as a sculpture. But with this language, I can actually create uh, a sort of visual world of the mind My but I gosh. need language to do that so, so this uh, is mathematical philosophy uh, and it's this sort of sense of uh, imaginative abstraction using limit language up to the boundaries of its limits I mean I suppose this is this is really mind-blowing for me because I've always seen art as the sort of the non-linguistic high point that actually when language reaches its conclusion when a poem can tell you so much or a philosopher can write so much the artwork cuts out all of that learnt language and gets back to the imagined and the and physical I've always seen art as that ex higher expression but but actually what you're saying is by being linguistic you can take it things onto a philosophical level that you wouldn't have imagined in the physical world that that that's true and that's very often the the visual that you're seeing which you, you you're finding it difficult to articulate with natural language um, maybe a mathematical language will allow that's why I think we should keep on talking because yeah. I think uh, I, know, well, no, I think we've left behind Pollock about half an hour well, ago here, but we're yeah, off but to. I think art history, thoughts, yeah. uh, you know, the understanding of art through this language, the mathematics is the language which helps us to navigate the the geometric world and the visual world, and to 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 perhaps create ways of talking about things which our natural language uh, cannot do. And this language of mathematics is the language of the natural world. Actually, one of the conclusions of my book is that um, uh, what we cannot know is that uh, there's so much mathematics hiding under everything. Maybe the universe is just a physicalized piece of mathematics. But the mathematics, you know, if we come back to God, uh, very often uh, what motivates people's kind of belief in God is I don't understand where all of this stuff came from. So I'm just going to put it call that thing god mm. the the creator of this all i don't know what that is um uh and it's an unknown 
if you want a creator, it seems to me that you need something which is outside of time. Um, and so what's outside of time? I think that mathematics is the one thing that is actually timeless. It's always there. It's about relationship and structure. And so for me, people kind of often say, oh, oh, God's a mathematician. Um, <laughs> I would reverse that and say, no, mathematics is the God, which uh, is the creator of all of this. So uh, anything which we see around us, which has some sort of structure, which will include the, the, the world of art, probably has a mathematical way of, of looking at it. Oh dear, I mean, I'm this close to an expletive because this is just, my head's just gone. Uh, I am, uh, uh, God is mathematics, mathematics is God. I, I mean, this is, yeah, it, it's it, to me, uh, there's, to me, where the boundaries between, like you were saying earlier, what religion does, and in a way what art does is, is dress within a social and cultural norm our attempts to grapple at that endpoint. And so it might be religious art, it might be um, something that's trying to deal with a philosophical issue, but you can only set it within a zeitgeist. You can only use your reference points within your consciousness of where you get to. And I, I think I think we should keep talking because I think what you've done is taken the next step beyond my idea of the subconscious being expressed within the movement of the hand into the underlying sub subject matter of the subconscious that, that's underneath all of that. So blimey, we've started with Pollock and drip painting. <laughs> we've ended, ended up with up the meaning with of life. <laughs> which of course is the number 42. Of course so. it's number 42. We all know that. We've all heard our Douglas Adams. <laughs> but no, this is extraordinary. I mean, we've, we've, we've massively overrun. But it's been brilliant. And um, I think the thing is that it's, it's trying to get, for me, as going back to art and, and art history, it's trying to put an understanding of why great artists, why great paintings work. And there is a reason that people return to Pollock again and again. And everybody says it's throwing paint on a canvas, but there is something deeper. And actually what you're getting to is that it's mathematics and potentially God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've gone through the whole process. Marcus, what a delight. It's Pleasure. been so much fun. Let's do this again. Yeah. Love to do something else. Okay. Thank you, Art Detective listeners. If you've enjoyed this, please sign up to the podcast, which is at historyhit.com slash artdetective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And Marcus, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Yes, I'm uh, Marcus DeSotoy. Marcus DeSotoy. So you must find him on there. Follow him. Uh, keep up with all his wonderful work at making maths fascinating and accessible. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.